As we talk about the things of God this morning, I want to address myself to a subject that periodically I do in our life here at the college as we have a new group of students coming through from time to time. And that's the subject of knowing the will of God. I remember as a college student myself that one of the pervasive questions was that, uh, that uh, I be able to discern the will of God for my life. What does God have for my life? What does God want for my life? I remember a number of years ago, I was invited to speak at the Moody Bible Institute many years ago, and I... I went to speak at Moody and they announced that I was coming and uh, they announced that my subject was how to know the will of God for your life. And uh, some of the students came to me when I was there and said, don't you realize that every single speaker who ever comes to this school speaks on that same topic? Everyone comes here and speaks on how to know the will of God for your life. And so I said, well, look, I said, I've got another angle on this thing. You just come and listen and see if it sounds like what you've heard in all the other messages. So I make the same appeal this morning. I know you may have heard a lot of people talk about how to know the will of God for your life, uh, but whether or not they've really intersected with the Scripture in a way that uh, can give you direction from God or not, I'm not sure. So let's tackle this somewhat familiar theme in hopefully an unfamiliar format. In Psalm 143 and verse 10, David prayed a prayer that should be the desire of every Christian's heart. David said, Lord, teach me to do thy will. That's an important statement. He said, teach me to do thy will. He didn't say, teach me thy will. He said, teach me to do it. The issue was not knowing what it was. The issue was doing it. That was the real challenge. The Lord Jesus Christ prayed a prayer. He said, not my will, but thine be done. And then he said, I am come to do the will of him that sent me. The issue is not knowing God's will. The issue is doing God's will. The knowing of it isn't really that difficult, as I'll try to point out to you today. In fact, in uh, the disciples' prayer, which we all learn to pray, sometimes called the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew 6.10, it starts out like this, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And what's the next line? Thy will be done, not known. And the issue in Scripture is really not knowing God's will, it's doing God's will. That's the real challenge. And the object, I think, of our discussion this morning is not so much to know God's will. We'll cover that, and it's a rather simple thing to cover. But the challenge is really to do God's will. On a number of occasions, for example, in the life of the Apostle Paul, particularly I'm thinking of Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 10, Romans chapter 15, around verse 31, 32. Paul uses the phrase, by the will of God. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, by the will of God. Or literally, because it is the will of God. Paul was committed to doing the will of God. In Colossians chapter 4, there's a wonderful little statement there that reflects the heart and the passion of a man named Epaphras. And it says, Epaphras sends you his greetings to the Colossians, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. And what does he pray for? That you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. That you may do the will of God. That you may be in the will of God. That you may be fulfilling God's will for your life. So the real challenge is to do God's will. In 1 Peter 4, 2, it says, So as to live for the will of God. So we want to start out with a basic premise, and that is this. We need to be committed to doing God's will once we discern what it is. 
The challenge is not so much, again, in knowing it as it is in doing it. Now, if it is so essential to do God's will, how can we be sure what it is? Well, I suppose there are some people who think God hides his will and they run around and God is sort of like some celestial Easter bunny who says, you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer. And we're, uh, some people think, I suppose, uh, waiting for some divine event. You know, you're running along the street, you slip on a banana peel and your nose lands on a map of Argentina lying in the gutter and you say, ah, the will of God, some traumatic event or a voice out of heaven, go to India. Some people think the will of God is sort of like a brass ring. You, you sometimes get on those merry-go-rounds when you're a little kid and they have a little brass ring you can grab. And there's a lot of lead ones, but every once in a while a brass one comes. And if you get the brass one, you get a free ride. And it's sort of like life. You know, you go around in a circle and you hope you get a brass ring. And if you don't get a brass one, you get a lead one. It's okay. You got the ride anyway. And, and God's will is kind of like that. Maybe you get it. Maybe you don't. It's, it's not that big of a thing. And some people think God's will is, uh, is something to avoid, you know, like God wants to stick a pith helmet on your head and stick you in a humid place where you get malaria for the rest of your life. And so what you really want to do is stay away from God's will because it's real serious, you know, and God is sort of like a cosmic killjoy who goes around saying, there's one having fun, <laughs> get him, you know. And we wonder whether God has a will regarding... Uh, our college, or God has a will regarding the person we're going to marry, or God has a will regarding friendships, or a career, or where we're going to live, or what kind of house we're going to buy, or what kind of car we're going to buy, or what kind of church we're going to go to, and all of that. And life has all these myriad of options, and all these variables, and, and there we are saying, what is God's will in the midst of this? And I applaud you if you're asking that question, because it's the, it's the important question to ask. It presupposes, I guess, that you're willing to do it when you find out. Although that may not always be the case. Now, if God has a will for our life, and I think it's safe to say that he does, since we've reiterated all of these various verses that indicate that we're to live in God's will, we can assume that God has a will for our lives. I assume he has one for mine, and, and uh, I can assume that he has a will for your life as well. Now, if God has a will for our lives, if that is genuinely true, if he has called us to himself by faith in Christ, if he has gifted us by the Holy Spirit, if he has poured us through all kinds of experiences, if he has tied us into all kinds of relationships, if he has brought us under many, many influences, they all should be moving toward the, uh, the result of doing as well. So we assume that God has a will for our lives, that he wants us then to do that will, and that's why we pray thy will be done. Now, if those things are true, then I think it's safe to assume that God will reveal His will to us. I mean, it wouldn't make sense for God to have a will and God to expect us to do that will and then to make it impossible for us to find out what it is. I mean, that would be pointless. So God reveals His will very clearly. He reveals His will very clearly to us. In fact, if you go back into the Old Testament, God had laid out a myriad of different ways in which he would reveal his will. One very interesting verse in Genesis chapter 1, and it perhaps gets overlooked, but it's verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. That's the stars, the moons, and uh, the sun. And then listen to this. And let them be for signs. Let them be for signs and for seasons, as well as for days and years. What is that? What do you mean, let them be for signs and seasons? 
The Hebrew term for signs, meri'im, it doesn't really much, it doesn't mean sort of like, uh, or the, the word for seasons, I mean, doesn't mean like winter and spring. It means, it's a term in the Hebrew meaning the gathering of the people, uh, the assembly of the congregation. So the Lord is saying, let the stars and the moon and the sun be for signs to indicate certain gatherings of the people. It is used uh, elsewhere in Scripture uh, to speak of the same kind of thing, the gathering of the people for special events. In Psalm 104:19, it says, He appointed the moon for seasons. He appointed the moon for the gathering of people. What does that mean? Well, all the Jewish festivities, all of the Jewish festivals were established by the movement of the stellar bodies. You remember the Apostle Paul talking about new moons. Talking about Sabbaths. The calendar relates to the movement of the sky. The stars and the moon and the sun then were established by God, not only for night and day, and not only for the physical aspect of seasons, but to establish festivals and gatherings of the people. God therefore reveals His will through the stellar bodies, a new moon, a feast, a Sabbath. God used even the stars then as signals and signs to express His will. And beyond that, you find many signs in the Old Testament that God used. Uh, there were various miraculous births, such as in the case of Isaac. Uh, the finding of a wife for Isaac was an amazing series of providential things in which God used signs. Eliezer goes to a well and he says to God, All right, God, i got to know which of these women who show up is the one you want to be Isaac's wife. And so uh, here's the little plan. Here's the plan. Whoever says, I'll water your camels, whoever gives water to my camels and to me is the one who will be your choice. And so the agreed upon sign is established and the woman who is God's choice comes and the will becomes very obvious because she says, can I water all your camels, which was a massive undertaking because there were a number of camels and uh, putting water in the humps of camels is a long process, especially if you have to draw out a bucket at a time. And she was willing to do that and that was the sign. There was no particular pattern of knowing God's will in ancient times other than some outward way. Uh, God often spoke verbally as he did to Abraham. Sometimes his will was revealed by a pillar of fire, sometimes a cloud, uh, sometimes a fleece, as in the case of Gideon in Judges chapter 6 in the battle against the Midianites. Sometimes his will was manifest by fire, as on Mount Carmel. And then there were the times when Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, and Jeremiah uh, were given signs to demonstrate the will of God. You come into the New Testament, it's the same way. Jesus comes along, he does many signs, according to John 20, 30, and 31, a myriad of signs that Jesus did. There was a vision given to Peter to establish God's will in Acts chapter 10. Uh, the Apostle Paul had a sign from heaven which blinded him on the Damascus Road, which affected his call to the ministry. The day of Pentecost demonstrated uh, cloven tongues of fire coming down and uh, the ability to speak in languages not your own as an indication of God's will and the unfolding of his purpose, not only for Israel, but for the rest of the world. The signs of an apostle are discussed in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. So in the Old Testament time and even in the time of our Lord, God used signs, external manifestations, to demonstrate His will. But we live in a time different than that. This is no longer a time for outward signs. This is no longer a time when God speaks audibly. This is not a time when Jesus is walking on the earth. This is not a time when miracles occur and 
And so we have to approach this matter of God's will from a different angle. We can't expect God to talk out of heaven. We can't expect some special movement of the stellar bodies. We can't expect the, the sun to stand still in the middle of the battle and give us an indication that God is going to put the battle in our hands. We can't expect an axe head to float in the water. Those are not things that occur in this era of God's redemptive history. You say then, well, where do we look? If we want to know God's will, where do we go? And the answer is, the Word of God is complete, and so we go to the Scripture. It is the revelation of God's will. And everything we need to know about God's will is really right here on the pages of Scripture. It's right here. You say, you mean to tell me I can decide what college to go to, who to marry, where to live, what kind of job, career, etc., etc., from the Bible? You mean it's that specific? Absolutely. And I'm going to show you how how it works that way. Now, before we can know the unknown part of God's will, the questions that you might ask or I might ask about our individual lives, let's look at what we can know about God's will, all right? Let's start with the known part. And the Bible reveals some things that are absolutely true about the will of God. First of all, God's will is that you be saved. God's will is that you be saved. 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should what? Should perish. It is not the will of God that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2, 4, God our Savior who will have all men to be saved. It is God's will then that we be saved. That's God's will. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 11, for the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. Then it goes on to talk about the sheep, how one strays, and the shepherd goes to find the one that was lost. It is God's will that you be saved. That's where it all begins. And if you're not saved, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ personally, if you've not come to the foot of the cross and confessed your sin and embraced Christ, the rest of the will of God is a moot point. It's never going to be revealed to you. God came into the world, of course, in the incarnation, in the form of Jesus Christ, in order that He might die, pay the penalty for your sins, rise from the dead to provide resurrection life for you. He offers the gift of salvation. It is God's will that men be saved. And until they are, the rest of God's will will not be known to them. It's not available to them. And in fact, God's will for them is judgment. That's right. If you're not a Christian, then all you're left with is punishment, as you well know. Now, we understand that. God's will begins with being saved. So let's go to a second point. And I want to dwell on this one a little longer. God's will is that you be spirit-filled. Not only saved, but spirit-filled. And I use that term because, of course, it comes out of Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to read just a couple of uh, verses out of 5. Ephesians 5:17. Listen to this now. So then, do not be foolish. Literally, do not be stupid. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, stop there. That's Ephesians 5.17. If you don't understand the will of the Lord, what are you? Stupid. Foolish. Say, why? Well, because for one thing, you didn't read the next verse. Here it is. Do not be foolish or stupid, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here it is. Do not get drunk with wine, that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the will of God. 
It is God's will that you be saved, that you come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and to express that will and to make that will possible, He has brought Jesus Christ into the world to die on the cross and to rise again. It is God's will that you be saved. Secondly, it is God's will that you be spirit-filled. That's absolutely foundational. That is basic to the Christian life. That you be spirit-filled. Now, what does that mean? Well, simply speaking, we all possess the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us. And from the moment of our salvation, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul said to the Corinthians, What know you not that your body is the temple of the Spirit of God, uh, which you have of God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. The Spirit of God dwells within us. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 9, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit took up residency in you. 1 Corinthians 12 basically says the very same thing. The Spirit of God has taken up residence in your life. He lives in you. You are the temple of the Spirit of God. But being indwelt by the Spirit is only part of the issue. What Paul's talking about here is being filled with the Spirit. Being Spirit-filled. Now, what does that really mean? Well, let me just take the word filled, which is the Greek word plerao, and give you some usages of it, particularly out of the Gospels. In John 16, the term is used with this little phrase, sorrow has filled your heart. Sorrow has filled your heart. In Luke 6:11, someone was filled with madness. In Luke 4:28, they were filled with anger. In Luke 5:26, they were filled with fear. What does that mean? What does filled mean in the sense of sorrow, madness, ra uh, wrath or anger and fear? It means that it dominated them. It means that it controlled them, that it took over every area of their life and was the compelling influence. Now, life is going to bring us certain sorrow. And, and we, we deal with that sorrow. People die. We have disappointments in life. Uh, we have heartaches in life. Things don't turn out the way we think they will. Our dreams don't all come to pass. People, people uh, break our heart and disappoint us. And sometimes we become ourselves uh, ill and we have to face the difficulties that that illness uh, produces. And life has its sorrows. We look at our culture and it makes us sorrowful to see the dissipation of the society in which we live. And, and we concern ourselves with those things. But on the other hand, life is filled with joyous things as well. And so we kind of balance that. You know, there's enough to make us happy. Uh, we have happy relationships. We know Christ. Uh, it's a beautiful day. We're, we're looking forward to some great events. We have some precious friends. Uh, we have all we need. We're supplied with many wonderful things. Our old aunt died and left us 50,000 bucks. And so, you know, life, uh, life has a way of balancing itself off. And then some disastrous things ha happen, like the person you love the most has a car accident and they die and the scale is no longer in balance and the thing is tipped completely toward sorrow. And we're overwhelmed by sorrow and tears and we can't find the balance anymore and we can't find the smile anymore because we are filled with sadness. In the sense of anger, we, we, there are things to get angry about and there, there are things that uh, we're happy about. and. And then something blows and it blows sky high and we become filled with anger and the balance in life is gone and that anger dominates us. That's the word plerao. And when it's used with the, with the Holy Spirit, what it means is that, you know, we go through our Christian life and there's a little for the Holy Spirit and a little for us and you take a little and I'll take a little and, yeah, Holy Spirit, I'll do a few things to please you and I'm going to do a whole lot to please me. But that's, that's how most people live their Christian life in a sense of sort of shallow kind of apathy. But when you're filled with the Spirit, the scale is tipped completely in favor of the Spirit of God, and He dominates your life. 
totally controlling your life. That's God's will. That's God's will. Also, the word play ra'o is used in the Gospels to speak of, um, of wind filling something and moving it along. Moving it along. The, they would say that the, the sail was filled with wind and carried along and moved along. It's not the idea of a static filling. It's not a word that means like, like uh, simply filling a glass. You fill a glass with something and it just sits there statically filled. It's the idea of, of wind that moves something. Like in Peter's epistle where he talks about men being moved along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.21. So it is both a dominating influence and a moving influence. To be filled with the Spirit means He totally controls my life and He moves me in the direction that He wants me to go. That's what it is to be filled with the Spirit. It's a marvelous concept. Now, to be so controlled by the Holy Spirit is to have in His influence dominating my life. I can illustrate it if I, if I had a glove here and I said to this glove, glove, go play that uh, keyboard. The glove can't do anything. But if I put my hand in the glove and play the keyboard, you'd have a problem because I can't play the keyboard, but apart from that, the glove will do whatever my... The glove doesn't say, oh, fingers, show me the way to go. The glove just does whatever the fingers do. The glove responds completely to what controls it. And that's the way we should be as Christians. To be filled with the Spirit of God simply means the Spirit's in control of everything. He is the controlling power in my life. He is the moving influence in my life. And all I'm doing is simply responding as he plays the melody that fulfills the will of God. Let me give you another illustration of this from a biblical perspective. Peter, I think everybody's favorite apostle because of his failures, we all identify with him, uh, is, a remarkable, is a remarkable study, frankly, because Peter could do some astounding things. I mean, like uh, walk on water, pretty astounding, right? He could walk on water, and he did that. Not only could he do astounding things, he could say astounding things. On one occasion, walked on water in Matthew 14, and another occasion in Matthew 16, Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? What's popular opinion about who I am? And uh, they said, Well, some say you're Jeremiah, and some say you're one of the prophets. And he said to the disciples, But who do you say that I am? And Peter immediately spoke and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I'm sure when he said that, he went, Burn. Where did that come from? And Jesus said to him, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven did. He said that. He said, astoundingly, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The same Peter who had a hard time figuring just about anything out. You see, he did miraculous things and he said miraculous things. Not only that, he had miraculous courage. John 18, the soldiers come in, a cohort of soldiers comes in, it could be as many as 600 of them, brandishing their spears and their swords and their knives. They come in with the torches, the high priests and all the leaders of Israel, and they're coming to capture Jesus Christ. And the reason they've got the, the Roman cohort and all this entourage of people is because they don't know what to expect. They know he's a very powerful individual and they're very much aware of his miracle power and that they think they're going to need an army to, to handle him. And they come to take Jesus, and there is Peter. And Peter's first reaction is, this isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen. And so he grabs a sword, 
And he takes a swing at the head of Malchus. It says he cut off his ear, but you know Peter didn't go up to him and say, Got your ear, Malchus. No. Peter was going for the head. The guy just had good reflexes. I mean, here is, here is astounding courage, frankly. I mean, you're talking about maybe 600 Roman soldiers armed to the teeth. You're talking about one guy standing there with one puny little thing in his hand, and he takes a whack at a young guy who's nothing but a servant of the high priest. But you've got to admire his courage, because he was really putting his life on the line. The Apostle Peter did some astounding things, said some astounding things, and demonstrated astounding courage. But there was one common element in all of those events. In each of those three events, there was one very, very important feature. He was standing right beside Jesus Christ. When he walked on water, Christ was there. When he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Christ was there. And when he pulled out his sword, he was standing right beside Jesus Christ. And I know his thought was, if I get into trouble, I know he'll zap him and they'll all go. Because he had already seen Jesus knock them down with a word, I am he. The point being this, that whenever Peter was in the presence of Christ, he demonstrated this tremendous power. Whenever he was near Christ, he had this power. We see him a little while later. Jesus has been taking, taken into to a place to be tried before the high priest. Peter is outside. He's separated from Christ. Three times, what does he do? He denies Jesus. Three times. He forsakes Jesus and he flees. He denies him and he swears and curses in the process. What happened? How can this man who could do the miraculous and say the miraculous and demonstrate miraculous courage become so instantly a coward? And the answer is because he was removed from the presence of Christ where his strength was. As long as he was around Christ, it drew the best out of him, both outwardly and inwardly. I mean, you've got to know that when he was near the Lord Jesus Christ, he not only watched his behavior, but he watched his thought life because he knew that Jesus knew what was in his heart. And when he was near Christ, he was, he was at his max. And that simple separation away from Jesus, he lost all of his power. When Jesus was merely a few hundred feet away, he was a coward. Out of his mouth came not the miraculous, but cursing. And not only did he not do the miraculous, he fled. Now, the next time we see Peter in our little chronology, Jesus has ascended to heaven. You say, uh-oh. If Peter was a coward at a few hundred feet, he's going to be really useless now. Jesus had gone back to heaven, ascended in chapter 1 of Acts. But the next time we see Peter, guess what? He stands up in the city of Jerusalem with the other apostles and does what is miraculous. He speaks in languages he doesn't know. And then he goes into the temple and he heals people. He has this power. And then he preaches this amazing, powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost, which exalts the Lord Jesus Christ and indicts the whole Jewish leadership. And then he has amazing courage because they draw him in and they arrest him and they take him in and they say, stop preaching. And he says, you judge whether we ought to obey God or men. And they turn him loose and he goes right back out and preaches again. 
and they throw him in prison and that doesn't stop anything. The angel comes and opens the prison and he goes right back out again and keeps preaching. Now listen, here is Peter. He's doing the miraculous healing people. He's saying the miraculous, speaking the word of God right out of his mouth. And he has this amazing courage and ultimately his courage took him to the place where he was crucified upside down for his Savior. You say, I don't understand. If he was a coward at a couple hundred feet, how could he be a hero when Jesus is all the way back in heaven? And the answer is this. Acts 2.4 says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now let me put it to you as straight as I can. When Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, he was the same kind of person that he was when he was in the intimate presence of Jesus Christ. See the parallel? So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It simply means to live your life consciously in the presence of Christ. It's to be preoccupied with the presence of Christ. That shouldn't surprise us. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled with the Spirit. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And those are just two ways to describe the same reality. When your life is dominated by the Spirit, it's dominated by the Word. That's all. When it's dominated by the Word, it's dominated by Christ because it's the Word about Christ. So when we talk about a Spirit-filled life, young people, we're not talking about something mystical, something spacey, something out there somewhere in some foggy existentialism. When we talk about a Spirit-filled life, we're talking about a life that is controlled by the Scripture so that Christ becomes real, so that I'm aware of His presence and I'm living in the light of His presence so that He dominates my life. That's a Spirit-filled life. After all, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And what is God's will for your life? That you be saved, that you come to the cross and bow your knee to Christ, and that you be Spirit-filled. That is, that the Holy Spirit be controlling your life because your life is saturated with the truth about Christ, so much so that you live in the consciousness of His presence every moment. A Spirit-filled life is a Christ-conscious life. That means I never say a word without realizing Christ will hear that word. I never think a thought without realizing Christ will understand that thought. I never do a deed without realizing Christ will see that action. I live in the conscience, conscious, pervasive presence of Jesus Christ. And it's so overwhelming to me that even in my involuntary responses, I exalt Christ because I'm so conscious of His presence. Thirdly, what is God's will for your life? It is that you be saved. It is that you be spirit-filled. Thirdly, that you be sanctified. Sanctified. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is so clear you couldn't possibly miss it. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. How clear is that? This is the will of God. Your sanctification. You say sanctification, that's a theological term. What does it mean? It means to be separate from sin. The word simply means to be separated, to be set apart from sin. That's God's will. It says it in verse 3. This is the will of God. You don't have to be a brain surgeon to figure it out. It's very clear. Your sanctification. What does that mean? Your purity. That you be separated from sin. You say, well, what do you mean specifically? Well, let's look at it. Verse 3. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. How clear is that? Stay away from sex sin. And somebody says, how far away? Far enough away to be what? Pure. 
Stay away from sex sin. Far enough to be separate, pure. And then in verse 4 he says, Each of you know how to possess his own vessel or body in sanctification and honor. Principle number one, stay away from sex sin. How far? Far enough to be pure. Principle number two, control your body so it honors God. Bring your passions and your longings and your desires under control so that they honor God. Possessing your vessel, your body is your vessel. Possessing means to control it, to hold to it, to hold on to it so that it's for sanctification and honor. Stay away from sex sin. Handle your body so it honors God. Control your body. Paul says beat your body into submission if need be. Don't let your body control you. The third principle in verse 5. Not in lustful passion like the heathen who do not know God. Don't act like godless heathen. Don't act the way the world acts. In your sexual relationships, your personal relationships with the opposite sex. We don't act like they act. How do they act? They're driven by lust. They're driven by passion. That's all there is in their life. They can't control themselves because God isn't there. The controlling factor in the ungodly is passion. That's all. So they do whatever they feel like doing. Whatever lust says to do, they do if they can, if somebody else will let them do it to them or do it with them. We don't act like that. We're not godless heathen. We are not controlled by passion. We are not controlled by that uh, Greek term epithumia, that term desire. We're not just creatures of passion who express that passion at every turn. God's will is that you stay away from sexual sin, control your body so it honors Him, and don't act like the rest of the world. We can't take our cues from them. We can't allow the way they behave to influence us to the point where we think that's how we should behave. And then the fourth little principle he gives here, profound, verse 6, and that no man, literally man or woman, no one transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. What's the matter? The matter he's talking about here is immorality. What do you mean defraud your brother? When you defraud somebody, you steal something that they have. You take something away from them. And you do it under um, false pretenses. Put it simply... A guy goes out with a girl, steals her purity. That's defrauding. A girl goes out with a guy, steals his purity because they compromise themselves. That's defrauding a brother. Don't want to do that. You don't want to defraud your brother or your sister in Christ. By the way, Matthew 18 says you'd be better off drown in the sea with a millstone hanged around your neck than to lead another believer into sin. Very serious issue. Now look, this is God's will. This part you don't have to fuss around trying to figure out. This isn't hard to find. You don't have to get in some uh, position of prolonged prayer to get this kind of information. You can just open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians 4 and it's abundantly clear what it is. God's will is that you be sanctified and that means you stay away from sexual sin, you handle your body so it honors God, you do not act like the pagan world around you driven by passion, and you do not take advantage of another person. You say, well, I don't know if I like those rules. Well, verse 6 says, this is a little reminder, the Lord is the avenger in all these things. So, if you decide to break them, just know 
who's against you? We told you before, and we solemnly warned you, for God, verse 7, has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this, you don't like this stuff? You reject it, you're not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Wow. Your argument is with heaven. Don't complain to me. Call up heaven. This is God's word. And if you violate this, then God is the avenger. What is God's will for your life? That you be saved, that you be spirit-filled, you be sanctified. Let me give you a fourth. First Peter, chapter 2. And this is a very important component in God's will. First Peter 2, we could start around verse 13. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Every human institution. That's family, government, school, whatever. Whatever authority is over you. Whether to a king as one in authority, or a governor, some ruler sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. That would be like the police. Submit yourself to everybody who's over you. Verse 15. For such is what? The will of God. That's another thing. The will of God is that you be submissive. The will of God is that you not be a rebel. The will of God, for the Lord's sake, it says. For the Lord's sake, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to honor Him, to exalt Him. I remember one time I went out here to Castaic, to the jail. And I was preaching to the prisoners out there in the maximum security. And afterwards, a guy came up to me and said, Hey, man, that was a great message. I really... I really like that. I said, are you a Christian? He said, yeah. He said, I'm a Youth for Christ director. I said, you're what? He said, I'm a Youth for Christ director. I said, what are you doing here? Oh, man, he said, uh, I got in a lot of trouble here and a lot of trouble there, but basically I accumulated 200, uh, 200 speeding tickets. I didn't pay him. Whoa. I said, uh, well, to be real honest with you, I'm glad you're here and not working with young people. Submit yourselves to every ordinance. That's a bizarre kind of illustration, obviously, but you get the picture. It's the spirit of good citizenship. It's the attitude of submission. It's um, being willing to set my will aside for those in authority over me. And once you begin to let the world and force the world to revolve around your desires and your wants and you want to control everything, everything starts to crumble. I guess we could safely say that's one of the problems in our society today is we don't have a submissive culture. But as Christians, we submit to the authorities around us. Titus chapter 3 says we submit to everybody who's over us. We do it with the right kind of attitude. We do it with a sweet spirit. We do it willingly. Submitting ourselves to elders, those who watch over our souls, who have to give an account for us. Submitting ourselves to those responsible for us, whether it's in a school or a home, whether it's in the church, whether it's in the society. You say, you mean we've got to do everything they say? With one exception. According to Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, you do everything they say unless they command you to do what is against the Scripture or command you not to do what the Scripture demands that you do. Peter said, we have to preach. You say, stop preaching. You're the authority. We say, at this point, we have to disobey you because you've asked us to do what is specifically against the command of God. Unless they ask us to violate the command of God in our society, whatever authority there is over us, we submit. We submit. Let me give you a fifth principle. It's also in 1 Peter, chapter 3 this time. 
Go down to verse 17. 1 Peter 3, 17. It is better if God will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now listen, you will suffer for doing what is wrong, right? You will. You'll suffer for doing what is wrong in a society because uh, you'll violate the law and you'll get in trouble. You'll suffer for doing what is wrong in a school. You'll suffer for doing what is wrong, perhaps even in your own church, in your own family. Uh, You'll suffer from doing what is wrong by the chastening of God. God may chasten you, as Hebrews 12 indicates. But it's a lot better to suffer for doing what is right. A lot better. And that's what he says. It is better if God should will it. That you suffer for doing what is right. So God's will sometimes is that we suffer. God's will is that we be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, and suffer. There are those times when we need to suffer. Look at verse 19 of chapter 4. Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Now, why would God ever want us to suffer? Why would he ever want that? Let me give you some simple reasons. One, he might want us to suffer for the sake of the gospel because there would be no other way to penetrate a certain culture or a certain environment with the gospel than to put our life on the line and have to suffer for doing that, right? Lots of missionaries have done that. The Lord might want us to suffer for the proclamation of the gospel. Certainly Paul did. And then on the other hand, the Lord might want us to suffer for the sake of humility. Like in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul said he had a thorn in his flesh, the Lord gave that to him uh, to keep him from exalting himself. And then the Lord might allow us to suffer so that through our suffering, we could learn how to deal with suffering and help others. You remember, uh, Jesus said to Peter, Satan's going to sift you, and when it's all over, you'll be able to strengthen the brethren. And sometimes the Lord wants us to suffer because it forces us into His presence and it enhances our prayer life. Well, there are a lot of reasons why we might suffer. But it is the will of God. First Peter 5.10, after you've suffered a while, the Lord make you strong. The Lord make you strong. First Peter 5.10, after you've suffered a little while... The Lord will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's part of your growth. It's part of your spiritual progress. Suffering for righteousness' sake. Suffering for doing what is right. Being rejected. Being falsely accused. Hey, I've learned to deal with that. I suppose recently you've been getting things in your mailbox that that attack me. I know that's happened in the past. I think it happened recently when I was gone. That stuff which is full of all kinds of lies and misrepresentations is being sent all over the countryside and passed out at our church and and uh, a major effort to uh, to undermine and discredit the work of the Lord that he might do in my life and the life of uh, the ministry he's given me. You'll learn to accept that kind of suffering if that's the kind of thing that God wants to bring in your life to make you dependent on him. Yesterday at Grace Church, uh, all of a sudden I was encircled by a group of policemen and I said, hey, what is going on? They said, well, there was a guy who came in here. He's some kind of a wacko uh, guy who's uh, not coherent and he's got a knife about this long and he's after you. And I said, uh, oh, uh, well, that's good. Uh, Where is he? He said, well, he's under arrest now, but we just are concerned that uh, until they get him cuffed and out of here, we want to make sure you're protected. Um, you know, those kind of things are uh, novel experiences in life. And uh, when, when those kinds of things happen, it just makes you trust the Lord and you recognize that every day of your life is a gift from God and it increases your trust. And that's fine. That's, that's the way life is. 
to be falsely accused, to be misrepresented, to be misunderstood. Even in all of those things, you know you're doing what is right before God. Your conscience is clear and you're suffering because somebody is trying to silence the truth. Somebody is trying to stop what God is doing. That kind of suffering for righteousness sake is the will of God. It's the will of God because you're living a life that honors the Lord. You're serving the Lord and it just comes. One last point. God's will is you be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, suffering. And then one final point, God's will is that you, I had to kind of tweak this one a little, that you be saying thanks. I couldn't think of a word for thankful that started with an S. That you be saying thanks. That's the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. And that's that, just that little brief verse. This is what it says. In everything... Give thanks, for this is the what? The will of God concerning you. Say thanks. Have a thankful heart. You know, some people just go through life bellyaching, complaining, and griping about everything. That is sin. That is sin. Cultivate a thankful heart. All right, now, let's sum it up. What is God's will for your life? That you be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, suffering, saying thanks. You say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That doesn't tell me what school to go to, who to marry, where to work, what kind of career. What are you talking about? Well, I got good news for you. I'm not done. Here, here's the kicker on this one. If you'll do all of those things, which are the revealed will of God, if you will do what you know is God's will, if you are saved and spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, willing to suffer for righteousness' sake, and you have a thankful heart. You know what the next thing is in God's will? You ready for this? Whatever you want. You say, what? Absolutely. Whatever you want. You don't mean it. I do mean it. You mean I can do whatever I want? That's exactly right. Because guess who will be controlling your wants? Right? You show me a saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive person living righteously so that they're willing to suffer for Christ and someone with a thankful heart. And I'll tell you right now, who is in control of their desires is obvious. It's got to be the Lord, right? Listen to that principle because it comes out of Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is the principle. Verse 4. Delight in the Lord. That is, put your, put your whole concentration on Him. And He will give you the desires of your heart. What does that mean? That doesn't mean He'll, He'll fulfill what you want only. What it means is He'll put the desires that ought to be there, there. He will give you the right desires. People say to me, Hey, why did you go to Grace Church? Because I wanted to. <gasps> no fleece? No fleece. No voice out of heaven? No. No banana peel on the map of Panorama City? No. Why did you go there? I wanted to. Well, how did you know that was God? Because if I follow what I know is God's will and I'm obedient to be the person God wants me to be, then I can do what my heart longs to do because He's in charge of the longings. The key thing is to fulfill the known will of God. The part that is unknown will come easy. Father, we thank You for our time this morning. And we thank you that you have revealed your will to us and you want us to do it. But the doing of it demands that we be the kind of person you want us to be. 
Oh, Father, help us to prove what your will is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect in your sight. Help us to be not conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we are the godly people you want us to be. And if we do what we know is your will, because you revealed it in Scripture, the unknown part will fall in line so readily. It's so easy for you to lead us when we're moving in the power of your Spirit, when we have obedient hearts, when we're filled with thankfulness and living righteously and willing to suffer if need be for it, when we're the kind of person you want us to be, how easy it is for you to give us the right desires and then fulfill them. Help us, Father, to do your will. We'll give you the glory and the thanks for such a privilege. In Christ's name, amen.